All right. Amen. Um, well, let me let me say a blessing uh, over the children uh, and also open open up the teaching with prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for these kids and I pray um, that Father Abraham would become their father in the faith, Lord, that all of these kids would um, grow to know and love you and put their trust in you and become a part of that great family that, that the whole Bible talks about, just as uh, Sarah was saying. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us adults um, the magnifying glasses that you want us to have during this time um, to zoom in on what you were trying to say through your word. Uh, open up our hearts and minds to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, so today I want to start off by doing something uh, that Sarah often does in the children's sermon, and I want to do a, a quick straw poll. Uh, and so I want to ask you to raise your hands. How many of you are the kinds of people who hate missing the beginning of a movie? So I want to see some hands if that's you. You hate missing the beginning of a movie. You got to raise your hand. All right. So uh, as I expected, <laughs> that most of us are raising our hands right now uh, because it's the worst when you miss the beginning of a movie, isn't it? Right, because that's where the director establishes the history, the, the origin story, the key characters, the musical themes, or even at times the emotional wounds that will play themselves out throughout the rest of the film, right? So if you miss the beginning, you're in danger of misunderstanding the whole story. And with certain genres of movie, uh, like superhero movies uh, or fantasy epics, the first few minutes is even more important than usual, right? So uh, it's probably not a surprise to many of you that The Lord of the Rings has one of my favorite movie introductions of all time. Uh, it tells the story of Middle-earth through the uh, eerie, ethereal, whispery narration of Kate Blanchett. And she starts, The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. Much that once was is lost, for none now live who remember it. And then she goes on to tell us of the forging of the rings long ago, and we see flashes of a great battle, and we're introduced to various races in Middle-earth, the elves and orcs and humans. And we learn of a Satan-like figure called Sauron, who's trying to gain control over all of Middle-earth through the One Ring, which has the power to tempt the hearts of mortals. We learn how the ring was lost for thousands of years until it was picked up by the most unlikely creature imaginable, a hobbit, Bilbo Baggins of the Shire. And uh, by the end of the introduction, we've really learned all the background info that we need in order to enjoy this epic story and all of this in less than seven minutes. I mean, I'm telling you, it deserved the Academy Award. I know the third movie won it, but that first movie I think deserved it. Um, so uh, as it ends, as this introduction ends in The Fellowship of the Ring, um, the pace of the movie slackens to the speed of life. So the music changes and the camera zooms in in on one particular hobbit, Frodo Baggins, who's uh, just sitting under a big oak tree in the Shire reading a book. 
And the implication is actually clear. The implication is that the story of this particular hobbit is going to somehow connect back with all these epic events that we've just learned about, right? So in some important way that we don't yet understand, the story of Middle Earth is going to hinge on the story of this one little hobbit. Now there's a point to all this. I'm not just indulging myself with another Lord of the Rings reference, although, you know, of course, there's a little bit of that going on, but, um, but there's, there's something similar that happens at the beginning of the Bible. For the last several months, we've been studying the opening chapters of Genesis. Uh, these 11 chapters, they really serve as this kind of introduction, as a sort of like epic overture for the rest of the Bible, and even for the history of the whole world. In it, we learn of the creation of the heavens and the earth through the word of God, of the blessing of the land and the seas and the animals, of the beauty of it all, the first day of rest, right? The union of the first man and the first woman, about their temptation, their tragic fall from grace, of original sin and death, and also the promise of future redemption. We find the first animal sacrifice, the first murder, and the first musicians and metal workers. We learn of the spread of universal human wickedness resulting in the great flood and culminating in the arrogance of the Tower of Babel. And we meet critical characters that are important for later like Adam and Eve or Satan or most importantly the Lord God, the good and sovereign creator himself. The opening chapters of Genesis are truly epic. They deal with situations and themes that are global in scope. But by the end of Genesis 11, something curious happens. The pace slackens significantly to the speed of life, and the, and the narration zooms in on a particular man, right, to Abram, later renamed Abraham, who's living in the city of Ur just beyond the Fertile Crescent, in modern-day Iraq. Now, uh, the opening chapters of Genesis span thousands of years in just a few pages, but the next 39 chapters of Genesis cover only four generations of this one man's family, so you can see how the pace has slowed down. And just as in the case of Frodo, the implication as we zoom in on Abram is clear, that the story of this particular man is going to somehow connect us back with the epic events that we've just learned about. So in some important way that we don't understand, the story of the world is going to hinge on the story of this one man, right? So with the rest of the time, I want to look at this hinge point in biblical history and explore the connection between Abram, Abraham, and what comes before, as well as his connection to what comes after. So let's start with Abraham's connection to what comes before, to the opening chapters of Genesis. Now, um, will you grab a Bible and turn with me to Genesis 11, or pull up a Bible on your Bible app? And of course, um, Abraham's most immediate point of connection to what has come before him is through the genealogy found here in Genesis 11, 27 through 32, which if you trace it through the earlier genealogies, connects him all the way back to Adam and Eve, of course. But here we learn some significant details about Abraham. For example, we learn that his wife Sarai, later renamed Sarah, is barren and had no child, verse 30. 
We also learn that his nephew Lot was fatherless, which is why he's adopted by Abraham. We learn that Abraham grew up in Ur, verse 31, and how he immigrated with his father to Haran in northern Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, both of these cities, uh, Haran and Ur, have actually been excavated by modern archaeologists and can be visited by curious travelers today. And in this sense, right, in this sense, the story of Abraham is somewhat different on a historical level than everything that has come before it in the Bible, right? Because we don't, we don't have the ruins of the Tower of Babel, but we do have the ruins of Ur, right? We don't have the, the address to the Garden of Eden, if it even works that way, I'm not sure. Uh, nor do the Tigris and Euphrates rivers continue to share the same headwaters with two other rivers like they do in Eden. But we do have the address of the ancient city of Haran, right? And it's true there is much historical evidence for the great flood that we find in Genesis 6 through 9. We went through some of that evidence um, a few weeks ago. But we can't place the same kind of date on that that we can upon the Chaldeans who dwelled in southern Babylonia around 1200 BC, which was actually long after the time that Abraham, Abraham departed from that area, right? So it was a way of describing to the contemporary audience of the Bible um, uh, the land that Abraham came from. In other words, history doesn't begin with Abraham in the Bible. It, it actually begins when God says, let there be light in Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. But there is a certain epic quality to the stories that come before this, which makes them feel sort of like less historically accessible to us. On the other hand, we're able to sync the life and geography of Abraham more closely with the world as we know it today. So let's dive into this text. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. These are some of the most important verses in all of Scripture. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now this is the central promise that runs throughout the rest of Genesis. It's repeated several times, elaborated upon several times. But how does this event, how does this promise connect to what came before? Well, first of all, let me pull this up. Sorry. All right. Let's see if I can do a good job now. All right. Nope, that's not what I want to show you. <laughs> Give me just one moment here. So, um, so what I'm what I want to show you here is um, that um, first of all, there's this there's this fivefold repetition of the word bless in these three verses, right? And um, these five blessings 
are set in deliberate contrast to the fivefold occurrences of the word curse in Genesis 1 through 11. So in other words, in God's election of Abraham, he's setting into motion the redemption of the world. God's promise to Abraham is actually his answer, his ultimate answer to sin and death. So when it's fully grown, when it's fulfilled, he's going to solve the problem that was introduced at the fall of man. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham explains that Abraham, like Noah before him, is a second Adam figure. Adam was given the Garden of Eden. Abraham is promised the land of Canaan. God told Adam to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham is promised descendants as numerous as the stars in heaven. God walked with Adam in, Adam in, the, in Eden. Abraham was told to walk before God. In this way, the advent of Abraham is seen as the answer to the problem set out in Genesis 1 through 11. Through him, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, furthermore, uh, fresh off the disaster of the Tower of Babel, where the people of the world came together and tried to seize all the trophies for themselves, the trophies of fame and security and a future, we find here that God offers all these things and more to Abraham as a free gift. Do you notice that? So, so in contrast, when we meet Noah in Genesis 6, he, he's a singularly impressive figure, right? But when God chooses Abraham here in Genesis 12, the Bible actually gives no indication that he's actually done anything particularly good or noteworthy to prompt God's choice. In fact, according to Joshua 24, Abraham's forefathers were actually pagans. Um, so, so there wasn't anything in him or anything in his family line that caused God to choose him. And this theme that God chooses us out of his great love, out of the love that's inherent in God's own character, and not because we're particularly lovable, continues to be a major theme in the Bible. As Moses would later declare to all of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, he says, the Lord your God has chosen you. He's speaking to Abraham's descendants. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Amen. In other words, God is keeping the original promise he made back to Abraham. And this brings us back to the idea of Abraham as this hinge point in biblical history, right? So we've already talked about how this story connects to what's come before, to the garden, right, to the flood, to the Tower of Babel. But now let's take a few minutes to discuss uh, Abraham's rele relevance to what comes after. Why does Abraham loom so large throughout the rest of scriptures? And in short, he is the first of the Hebrews. The Lord calls him out of a pagan land uh, to make him into the great patriarch of the Jewish people. And in the fullness of time, he becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of the future Messiah. So looking back at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we see that this call to leave Ur is actually a command, right? God says to him, go, which in Hebrew is in the imperative form. It literally means get out, 
Like, get out of your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I want you out of this pagan land. I want you out of all these, in, these pagan influences, right? I, I want to give you a new religion. I want to give you a new identity. I want to give you a new name, right? So the Lord becomes Abram's identity. Wenham refers to this as the, as the defining moment in Abraham's life. And he adds that in our rootless and mobile Western culture, we may easily miss what a drastic step this was. But in ancient society, your family and tribe defined what you were. And so to break away or lose your identity and security, uh, uh, sorry, to break away was to lose your identity and security for your extended family was your protection if anything went wrong. In Abraham's case, he was being asked to leave the most sophisticated and affluent part of the Middle East in that day for the unknown land, quote, that I will show you. So there's no more information than that, right? Abram goes and he just obeys God. And the call that God gave him might have been a free gift, but Abraham received that free gift by faith as being true. And for this reason, he's held up as the father of faith for Christians in the New Testament. Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 10 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place and was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Amen. Abraham's faith, then, is demonstrated here by his obedience to pack up and leave. In chapter in Genesis 15, it makes it explicit that it's Abraham's faith that causes him to do these things. But here, his faith is, is made explicit through his obedience. In a sense, I, I think that this word faith can become kind of nebulous to us, like we're, we don't quite understand what it means. Um, but one of the best synonyms for faith is the word trust, right? So, so just to draw a distinction between faith and wisdom, wisdom, right, doesn't touch the fire because it feels the heat. But faith doesn't touch it because your father said so. Right? Or, or to draw a distinction between statistics and faith. Statistics believes that you can still have a big family when you're 25 and your wife is fertile. Whereas faith believes you can still have a big family when you're 75 and your wife is barren. But that's only actually in this passage, the first command, this command to go, this is actually only the first command that God gives to Abram. There are actually two Hebrew imperatives in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, uh, even though the second is obscured in English. And let me try to show this to you guys. So you can see um, in uh, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, there's, there's two imperatives, there's two commands, and after each command, it's followed by three promises. So the first imperative, as we saw, was go get out from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then here are the three promises. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. Right? 
Um, now, the second imperative, um, which is kind of obscured in English, is so that you will be a blessing. But the force of these words in Hebrew is, oh, you will be a blessing, right? Like it's actually a command. And then there's three more promises. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, so... Um, in other words, God's call to Abraham, it was for him. It was to bless him, but it wasn't just for him. God actually had a global purpose behind his particular choice of Abraham. That's how he's solving the problems that got started in the earlier chapters of Genesis. And this is always the way that election works in the Bible. God's people are chosen and blessed, not simply for their own sakes, but in order to pass that blessing along to others, to display God's glory to other people and to the nations. And if Abraham wasn't willing to bless others, he was actually disobeying God and failing to live into his God-given identity. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's the same for us. If we're not sharing Jesus with the world, we're not just neglecting some sort of like superficial add-on that only applies to missionaries, we're actually disobeying God and failing to live up to our own God-given identities, right? Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. We can't be hidden under a basket. We can't put the lamp under a basket. And there's this undeniable connection between Abraham's call in the Old Testament and the Great Commission in the New Testament. The second is actually the ultimate fulfillment of the first. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes a big deal of the fact that God's promise to bless the nations through Abraham is, is actually ultimately fulfilled in Christ. Galatians 3.16 says, the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is in Christ. So God always planned on blessing the world through Abraham, but it was always gonna be fully realized in the fullness of time through the Messiah, the, the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we oftentimes forget that Jesus was Jewish. We think of him as whatever. I mean, we, we project our own ethnicity onto him or, or whatever movie we, we first watched about him when we were little. But in scripture, it's actually very important that Jesus is Jewish, that he's the son of David, because through Jesus, the blessing to all nations that occurs through the people of Israel comes, right? So in 1924, a British journalist wrote this, this anti-Semitic um, poetic couplet. Uh, he said, uh, how odd of God to choose the Jews. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. How odd of God to choose the Jews. And uh, one of this journalist's critics in response wrote this, not so odd, his son was one. <laughs> so that's easy for us to forget that Jesus, the Messiah, uh, was a Jewish man. But this is how God has blessed the world through this one man. I remember when I was preaching on Abraham years back, it was a different passage. I had John Orsell stand in front of the congregation and, uh, and blow his trombone as, as loud as he could. And I was making the point that through this little mouthpiece, 
And, and though the air travels through all these tubing, there's this huge sound that comes out on, on the horn side, right? And this is what's going on through Abraham. God chooses him. And through this little mouthpiece in the fullness of time, as time spans, this, this message is announced to all nations. And now all of a sudden, you know, just as the New Testament says, God can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham from these stones, right? Anybody who shares the faith of Abraham and the one creator God through Jesus Christ can be a part of Abraham's family. So this is, this is really um, the testimony of the entire Bible that the creator God chose Abraham to be a blessing to all nations, that this promise was fulfilled in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and it's extended out to the whole world, even today, through his disciples who are making disciples of all nations. And so I ask you, when is the last time that you took the risk to share Jesus with someone? Think about that for a second. Try to recall in your mind. When is the last time that you shared your testimony with a non-believer? Was it any time in the last month? Any time in the last year? Brothers and sisters, the primary call on God's people, the primary call on the church in Scripture is missionary in nature. Right? I mean, don't let ourselves be distracted by the kind of cultural milieu. Our primary call is missionary, not political. Right? I, I think many of us, we, we need to turn off Fox News and we need to turn off CNN and start sharing Jesus with people. Blessing the world through politics is fine as far as it goes. And, and some, some of God's people are called to do that. But don't tell me that you care about justice for oppressed people if you don't seem to have any concern for their eternal destinies, right? If that's how you operate, then I don't believe you actually believe what the Bible teaches. I don't believe you. And don't tell me that you care about the unborn if you don't care about whether or not they're reborn, right? Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? So Abraham is called the father of faith in the New Testament. But if we share the faith of Abraham, then we will share the faith of Abraham. We will adopt his missionary vocation. We too are called to be a blessing to the nations. A few years back, I built this friendship with a Muslim man from Egypt named Ismail. And uh, we actually spent 10 months studying the Bible and the Quran together. Uh, he shared what he believed, and I shared what I believed, and it was great. I, I actually learned a lot about Islam, and, and we became good friends. But I remember Ismail said to me early on, he said, um, I want you to know, Taylor, that I'm not trying to convert you. And, uh, and I remember I said to him, um, well, I really appreciate that. I said, um, but I want you to know, Ismail, I am trying to convert you. And, uh, and when I said that, his eyes got real big. And I said, now, I don't think I can actually change your heart. I think you have to decide to receive the message. I said, but the scriptures say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So I think it would actually be unloving of me not to urge you in any way that I can to put your trust in Jesus. Right? And after I said that, uh, 
Ismail, you know, sort of turned red a little bit and he said, well, yes, I, I mean, I, I am trying to convert you. And I said, uh, nope, too late. <laughs> and I, I chuckle at that, but, um, but this is actually serious, guys, because Ismail and others aren't going to be saved on the last day through the prophet Muhammad. And our non-believing friends are not going to be saved because of their ignorance, right? Paul says clearly in Romans 10, 14, and 15, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about without someone preaching to them? And how are they to preach unless, unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And we want to have beautiful feet. We want to bless the nations in Abraham, bless the nations in Christ. And friends, this doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be like preachy in the traditional sense of the word. Some of you guys, many of you guys have been coming to the evangelism training and you'll remember this acronym BLESS. It's a good acronym to remember uh, during a sermon about Abraham. Uh, BLESS, it reminds us to do five simple things when we're witnessing with uh, when we're witnessing to Christ, and I'll close with this, and I'll, I'm going to pull this up just so so we remember what this is. All right. So the B in bless reminds us to begin with prayer. So this is something that we can all do. We can all pray for our friends, our families, our neighbors who don't know Jesus. And when we when we when we commit to praying for people who don't know Jesus, stuff starts to happen, right? L is that we are to listen with care. And uh, we listen to people, not because they're sort of like our project, our conversion project. We listen because we care about them. We listen because we, we're curious about them. They're created in the image of God. People are infinitely fascinating if we'll actually just listen to them. And people nowadays, people aren't used to you listening to them. They're, they aren't used to you like putting your phone aside for a long time, listening to them, asking them good questions. It's one of the best ways that we can love people. So B, begin with prayer. L, listen with care. E, eat together. Now, I know I don't have to convince you very long on this one. Right? You guys are already going to eat. You already love eating. We all can do this. Um, but why not uh, take our lunch break and instead of eating it alone, or instead of eating, eating it always with the same friend, we say, well, I want to get to know that other person in the office, right? Or, or, or how about we invite our friend in our neighborhood, our neighbor that we've had some conversation with out in the lawn, or we've talked to every now and then, how about we invite them over to eat? I mean, even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of a neighbor that I have a great relationship with. I don't know why I've never invited them over for dinner, but I haven't, and I should, right? So this is an easy thing that we can do to build relationships. Um, S is serve in love. And so we serve people in tangible ways. And, um, you know, uh, the sort of other side of the coin of what I was saying earlier is, um, is that if we claim to love people, we should be willing to tangibly serve them. We don't just love them in some kind of like overly spiritual way, right? These two things, this willingness to serve people and this willingness to share the gospel are two sides of the same coin of love. Because if we truly love someone, we, we want to do for them what we can. But if we also, if we truly love people, then we desire for them far more than it is within our power to give them, right? And that will make us want to introduce, us, introduce them to the one who can give him those things. All right, so the first S is serve, and the last is share your story. 
share your story. Share the story of how you came to know Jesus. What did he do in your life? What did he free you from? Be vulnerable. The cool thing about sharing your story is that nobody can deny it, right? Somebody, uh, you, you start, you start uh, sharing uh, Bible verses with them, and sometimes they want to argue with you, right? Because they can argue with your theology, or they'll get you down a rabbit trail talking about politics or evolution or whatever, right? But when you share your story with them, you're sharing something that you've experienced, something that they can't deny. And especially if you've already done these other things and if you've listened to them, they're gonna be interested in hearing your story because you've showed them that you're interested in them. And oftentimes your story is the thing that will open the door to Jesus. This is the challenge that was issued last Wednesday in our evangelism training to share our testimony with somebody who doesn't know the Lord sometime in the next two weeks. And we can all do that. So we begin with prayer. We listen with care. We eat together. We serve in love. We share our story. And in this way, we follow Father Abraham, who's the hinge point of the biblical story. Through him, the Messiah ultimately came and died for the sins of the world, died to fulfill God's desire to bless and redeem and reverse the curse of the world. And through us, he's extending that into the lives of other people disciples making disciples. Amen? Amen.